Gilligan has proven again and again that he's a skilled storyteller in this universe. And if a post-finale finale had to exist, El Camino is a lovely coda that puts Jesse's tortured soul to rest in a way. That's from Sonia Soraya of Vanity Fair. The film we're reviewing this week is El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, which is currently available on Netflix. So you got no excuses not to go watch it. You don't have to leave your couch. You can go ahead and watch uh, what I think is a terrific movie. I saw it as did Joe. We'll give our review coming up. Plus, more from the Bada Binge. We've got about six weeks left here. The Bada Binge is now we're closing in on uh, season six, part one. A few more episodes, including Johnny Cakes. Uh, we've got some more news involving Martin Scorsese, doubling down, crushing Marvel, go Marty, and also a memoriam of Robert Forster. He's one of my favorite guests I ever had on Cinephile. He unfortunately passed away this weekend. He is terrific in El Camino. And so for all of you who are new listeners of the podcast, we're going to bring back that Robert Forster interview, which I did a year ago, which talk about crazy timing. We're releasing this on Wednesday, October 16th. That's a year to the day that I interviewed him last year when he was promoting a film called What They Had with Hilary Swank and Michael Shannon, which was, I think, a decent movie. And Forrester in particular was very good in it. Um, so it's just odd how life works. But obviously, he was a wonderful actor. We'll talk more about him and, and re-air the interview, which Rick Passmore and Dan Stanza can confirm was one of the best we ever did. He's a very funny guy and very down-to-earth and very charming as well. So appreciate that. Before we get rolling, though, I did give up a New York Film Festival ticket to my man Joe. And again, courtesy of Mel B hooking us up to go see Motherless Brooklyn, which is Edward Norton's real passion project. It's adapted from a great book, which Joe and I both read years ago. I stole it from my buddy Cabby's bookshelf when we were at Ryerson. And uh, Edward Norton producing, directing, co-writing, starring in this. I mean, this is all Edward Norton all the time. Motherless Brooklyn hitting theaters, I believe, in a couple of weeks, Joe. What was uh, your thoughts on it? I liked it. I wouldn't say that it blew me away, but it took nine years for Ed Norton to make. Like you said, he wrote, directed, starred in it, and it was kind of a loose adaptation on the book. So any fans of the book out there, which is incredible and a must read, uh, this, this was definitely kind of a loose adaptation. It takes place 40 years before then the book takes place in the 1950s. I would give it a solid three maple leaves. I thought, honestly, it was going to be more pretentious and a little bit more indulgent than it actually was, uh, just given how long it's taken Ed Norton to put this together and how the character in the movie, he has Tourette's, and I was wondering how Ed Norton was going to play that. All in all, though, it was a lovely watch. It was probably 20 minutes too long, but if you have two hours to kill, check out Motherless Brooklyn when it comes out. Yeah, I just checked the Rotten Tomatoes. They don't have a ton of reviews posted, but it's at 64% right now, so 16 above is a positive review. So curious how people will like it, but I'm glad the fact that if you've read the book as you did, uh, you did enjoy it. I wonder how many people are going to not have read the book and just confused about this fact. You get a story about a private detective with Tourette's, but it's a fabulous book and I can't wait for the adaptation. I'm glad you were able to see it. And I'm glad at least, Joe, you were able to see what the uh, New York Film Festival is all about. Hopefully uh, more of that in your future. As always, please do subscribe, rate, and review. I was on uh, Ron Rosillo's podcast, my buddy from The Ringer. So uh, make sure you check out that interview. Hoping to get a boost from all those people who listened because I was obviously trying to pitch the fact we need some more subscribers. Got this from Craig Snell. Only three stars he gives us with the headline, Marty File, want to play a drinking game, take a shot every time Adnan mentions Martin Scorsese, you won't be standing past the 10-minute mark. All right, that's fair, but can you give us five stars? Philly Steak 2323, I don't care. I'm glad you're back. Grad Stew, great unpretentious taste. Cinephile covers tons of good movies in a smart and fun way. It's easily the best movie discussion podcast, pound for pound. Thank you so much, Grad Stew. 
It's so good. My dad not only figured out how to listen to podcasts so he could hear it, but he reviewed the show too. Maybe he was the one that buried me. And since I have a platform, I'd like to say that Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal moved into my top 25 movies of all time after rewatch. Keep up the good work. I like that movie a lot, actually. That was number six in my top 10 of that year because I love the fact it was uh, clearly an homage to not only Taxi Driver but also Network, two great, great films from 1976. And I thought Gyllenhaal was very good in that movie. Uh, Duke Silver Sacks, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a cinephile. Love that. Adnan takes listeners along quick jaunts through the landscape that is current and past cinema. He and his comrades bring knowledge, passion, and a few cannolis to the podcast with their somewhat antithetical anecdotes of their experiences with film. It is worth the time, no matter the length, to take this journey and all who join in the festivity. Uh, they allow the interviews room to inform the reviews, breadth to relate, and the entertainment opportunity to envelop all who listen. Wow. It's a hell of a review. Duke Silver Sacks, thank you so much. And we got one more here. This is Go Bears 853. Maybe this is my brother. He's a Bears fan. Uh, don't write it on your friends and always is the subject heading. And then the review says, if you know who said that, you better subscribe to this podcast, download every back episode. Adnan is a great listener. I would say better than the old days. You can tell this is all him. Thanks for all the great advice. You really do guide my movie and TV watching. Well, that is so kind. Really appreciate those reviews coming in. Honestly, it means a lot to us. It's how we keep this thing afloat. So subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. All right, let's get to it and talk about El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie from Vince Gilligan. First off, credit to Vince Gilligan. In this era where everything gets spoiled, the fact they were able to pull off this movie is amazing without much hype. I only heard about it. A couple of months ago when they released it, the news to everybody that, yep, Breaking Bad movie is coming out. And it's amazing. I think they were able to shoot this in New Mexico in Albuquerque without people realizing what was going on. And uh, I was going to say it would be hard to get some of the cast back together, but I don't think so. I think if this is your career highlight. Vince Gilligan calls. It's easy to say, yeah, let's get back on the saddle again. And for Aaron Paul, it's been a bit of a mixed bag since Breaking Bad. And a couple of movies which did not do well. It did do a couple of series which I think have done better. So it's good to see him back as Jesse Pinkman, which I think will always be the role he'll be remembered for. And uh, it's terrific. It's a really enjoyable film. It's nice to go back again. I mean, obviously, I love the series. It's one of my top five dramatic series of all time. Maybe we'll even review it here once the Bada Binge is over. But the story picks up for the uninitiated after Jesse escapes. Uh, obviously, Walter dies, that final scene. And then Jesse escapes, and they kind of pick up the story from there. He goes, visits a couple of buddies, you know, Skinny Pete. He's one of his boys. He's got to figure out how he can evade the cops now, get some money, and get back on track. And a couple of things really stand out. One, it doesn't necessarily feel like a movie. More feels like an extended episode of Breaking Bad, which isn't a good or a bad thing, which is I know that it's available in some theaters. And I would say in this instance, there's, there's really no reason to rush to the theater. I would rather just watch it at home as you did the rest of Breaking Bad and uh, clearly fits well with the small screen experience of Netflix. I think it's a real slow burn of an episode, which I enjoyed. It wasn't like Gilligan felt like, hey... I get a two-hour movie. I got to jam a ton of plot into this thing. No, as always, Breaking Bad emphasizes character and atmospherics. There's some gorgeous wide shots, which makes you appreciate just how beautiful New Mexico is. A shot to the vistas. Um, Jesse Plemons along for the ride again. God, he's always good, like a young Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was in The Irishman as well. And uh, they go to flashbacks of scenes where he was holding uh, Jesse captive. But those shots where they're in the desert, I mean, it just takes your breath away how beautiful it is. Uh, Joe Tessitore told me years ago, in fact, Santa Fe, he goes, the sunsets will blow your mind. I've always wanted to go just to check out that area of town. And uh, El Camino will definitely make you appreciate that. Uh, even some of the shots, the way that Gilligan designs them. I mean, there's one, the shot of uh, where Jesse's revealed holding a gun. It's really smart the way they build that up. There's a couple other shots where the camera really kind of dovetails in with the storyline. That's always the key when it comes to great camera work. You know what I mean? I remember always thinking about this in film class. It's like 
every scene has to have motivation, right? You always hear actors say, what's my motivation? Well, same thing when it comes to camera shots and camera movement. What's the motivation? Why is that camera movement needed? And in the case of Breaking Bad, you can always appreciate the fact that Gilligan's taking you on this ride and it's completely self-assured and every it's it's confident in every note. You can tell they've scripted this out and thought about it and said, okay, if you're a Breaking Bad fan, here's what's happened to Jesse. And it's a credit to Aaron Paul's performance. Again, he's so vulnerable in the movie. I mean, there's at least a handful of scenes where he's fighting back tears, but then also has to be vicious and tough and, and hard-nosed because that's what the, the situation determines. But it's amazing to think they were going to kill this guy off after the first season. But because he was such a good actor, they said, you've got to keep this guy around because... You know, the way that Aaron Paul plays him, Jesse goes from this burnt-out druggie to a guy who is the most empathetic character on the show and somebody you really root for and really feel sorry for. I mean, he's just the heartbreak he's endured from Jane's overdose to so much more, the way that Walter's so conniving against him. You really do feel for him and really want a happy ending for, for uh, Jesse Pinkman. Also of note, Robert Forster's terrific in the movie. Obviously, it has more pathos of the fact that he just passed away. But as soon as he shows up in the movie, he says, oh, my God, Robert Forster, he's awesome. And uh, he's got a good 15 minutes of screen time. And uh, as Bang Mankwitz had tweeted after he passed away, he can do more with a sigh and a look than almost any other actor. And this is a nice way to remember him as uh, his role is a small role, but it is an important role when it comes to El Camino. So ultimately, was the movie necessary? No. Is it still very enjoyable? Yes. And that's why I'm giving it a solid three Maple Leafs. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody because I was spoiled of one aspect, which is, of course, is Walter White back? Is Brian Cranston back? So I'm not going to comment on that. But I think by now, if you check Twitter, you'll see whether the answer is yes or no when it comes to that. Al Camino, I recommend it, particularly if you're a Breaking Bad fan. Joe, how about you? Oh, I loved it, Adnan. I think any fan of Breaking Bad would love this movie. You're right. It wasn't necessary for them to make the film, but I thought it was a fantastic epilogue. And I thought to not give any spoilers away, but... The people who may or may not be there, I didn't think it was any. It was forced at any time. Uh, I thought it all worked, and it seemed like an extended episode, to your point, of Breaking Bad. Um, so I can't... I loved it. I give it four Maple Leafs, and I hope everyone checks it out. Yeah, it is fun just to saddle up with those characters again. Like I said, that location again. You know, it's like an old friend or an old sweater. You just kind of strap it on. You go, okay, we're back in that, that era again, and... Don't you agree? Just the craftsmanship, Joe, the cinematography, I mean, the, the camera movement, the editing, it's just so skillful and they're never in a rush, right? That's one of the things I loved about Breaking Bad. It's a very unhurried pace. Considering how high the stakes are at any moment, they just capture the tension and the suspense so well. Yeah, I completely agree. I, there is only one thing where I had to suspend my belief, I suppose. How, tell me how you felt, but you, in the flashbacks that they showed, uh, Jesse is now 40 years old and playing a near high school kid. And sometimes that kind of took me a little bit out of the movie. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Now when you think about it, because even you're right with the shaved head and the scruff, I'm like, he is supposed to be just a kid. And you're like, oh my God, like when you, especially when you're right, when you watch the first seasons again, you go, wow. I mean, he already was playing, you know, he looked older than he should have been. And you're right, playing now it is, it is a little bit excessive, but you're right. We don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, ultimately, like I think you're right, El Camino, if you're a Breaking Bad fan, there's no way you wouldn't like this movie. And uh, I mentioned the fact that I'm not going to rule whether or not Cranston shows up, but Jonathan Banks is back, uh, Mike Ehrman Trout. You do see him in the first scene, so it's good to see him again. I mean, that, that whole cast is really, really well done. And uh, honestly, I think it'll be something that people will appreciate. Before we get to Robert Forster, one more from my man Marty Scorsese, slamming Marvel movies again. Double down on the comments that Marvel films are not cinema, saying... To, uh, while he's promoting the Irishman at the BFI London Film Festival. 
It's not cinema. It's something else. We shouldn't be invaded by it. We need cinemas to step up and show films that are narrative films. On Saturday during Baptist annual David Lean lecture, the director made similar comments. Theaters have become amusement parks. That is all fine and good, but don't invade everything else in that sense. That is fine and good for those who enjoy that type of film. And by the way, knowing what goes into them now, I admire what they do. See, think about that, all you geeks, all you people hammering them on Twitter. He just said to give you guys props. I admire what they do. It's not my kind of thing. It simply is not. It's creating another kind of audience that thinks cinema is that. Scorsese, who struggled to find funding for The Irishman before signing a deal with Netflix, first spoke out against the big-budget blockbusters earlier this month in an interview with Empire. And, of course, there's been criticism from James Gunn, uh, Samuel L. Jackson as well. So I was just happy, Joe, the fact he doubled down. I was actually waiting for days for him to come back and say, listen, man, these are great movies. I certainly appreciate the craftsmanship, which is what I said initially. If I offended anybody, I'm sorry. I hope everybody supports movies in whatever fashion they come. But no! Marty's like, screw that, man. I'm going to stick with what I said. They're not cinema. They're not narrative films. They're not psychologically, emotionally involving. They're still, in my opinion, like amusement parks. Obviously not my thing. If they're your thing, fine. But movies should be celebrating all kinds of cinema. I don't want to see 10 superhero movies in my local movie theater, which if you know anything about Martin Scorsese, is par for the course. Yeah, and he's the GOAT. You can't question the GOAT on this. He, It's Martin Scorsese. I, I understand what he's saying. I was looking at the top grossing movies of 2018, and the first 12 are either action movies, children's movies, or superhero movies. The first narrative <laughs> cinema movie that I think would fall under his category is The Star is Born, and that is at number 12. So... Wow. I get what he's saying, but I just don't think people are going to the theaters for anything else, really. The reason why people are going to the cinema is for these big amusement park movies. Yeah. As I mentioned last time on, when I was reading that article from The Hollywood Reporter, the fact that you know it's unfortunate because too often there's just not enough um, of a support for those independent films. And that's why so much you see these independent movies now being shown with regards to being on the small screen, right? You'll see more of those kind of actors or directors doing a limited series, doing that on Hulu or Amazon, whereas in the past they'd be able to find that kind of funding with a movie. But hey, man, as long as, as long as there's good content out there, we can all definitely appreciate that. And also veteran actor Robert Forrester, best known for his role in Jackie Brown, most recently in Last Man Standing in the Breaking Bad movie El Camino, passing away Friday at his home in Los Angeles after battling brain cancer. He was 78 years of age. The New York actor was the son of an elephant trainer who first caught the acting bug in high school. After working in theater, he made the move to Los Angeles to nab parts in films like Reflections in a Golden Eye, Medium Cool, and Justine. He played cops on TV in shows like Police Story and Nakia and nabbed action roles in flicks like The Delta Force opposite Chuck Norris. By the late 80s, the gigs began to dwindle down to forgettable movies with names like Satan's Princess and Checkered Flag. Until Quentin Tarantino helped revive his career in 1997 by casting him as sympathetic bail bondsman, Max Cherry in Jackie Brown. It earned him his first Academy Award nomination. It was then back to business for the prolific Forrester who went on to appear in Mulholland Drive, Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, Firewall, and The Descendants. He also kept busy in TV series, including Karen Sisko, Heroes, Alcatraz, and Twin Peaks, where he had a recurring role as Sheriff Frank Truman. In 2012, he was cast as Bud Baxter in the sitcom Last Man Standing, playing Tim Allen's father, and appeared in a 2013 episode of Breaking Bad and then reprised that role in the movie sequel, El Camino. As I mentioned off the top, he's one of my favorite guests ever we had on Cinephile. Just a totally down-to-earth guy and somebody who really had a lot of time for me and was very interesting and funny. If you haven't listened to it, take a listen to Robert Forster a year ago. May he rest in peace. A real working actor and a really nice guy. 
real pleasure to welcome in Robert Forster, legendary actor who's been in so many great films over the years, and we'll dive into some of those. He has a new film called What They Had, starring Hilary Swank, Michael Shannon, Blythe Diner, and many more. Thanks so much for the time today, Robert. You bet, Ed, man. Thanks for calling. Well, so this storyline is very heavy. At the urging of her brother, a woman returns to Chicago to visit her father and mother, the latter now suffering from Alzheimer's disease. I Hearing the movie is getting rave reviews. I can't wait to go see it myself in New York City in a couple of days. But when you get a film like this, which has such deep themes, I'm curious about the process while making it. Is it a situation where, because the themes are so sobering, uh, it's a serious set, or do you go the other way, and are you trying to offer some levity in between calling action? Thanks. Boy, that's a good question. This movie was written by a young woman, her first movie, but it won the Nichols Prize given by the Academy, the, the, the Motion Picture Academy, for a great script. She attracted Hilary Swank and Michael Shannon and uh, Blythe Danner and the two guys who produced Little Miss Sunshine. This movie has both tears and laughter. It has plenty of laughter. And I remind people that 100 years from now, when they show this movie, it'll still have tears and laughter. And if there is an ingredient that uh, that art should include, it is that it be good 100 years from now. Uh, it is um, a uh, it's a picture that on the set, you know, uh, actors uh, get together with uh, little preparation. Uh, it's a was a short schedule. You jump on the set and you assume intimacy and there are wonderful uh, moments in this script that are uh, that are serious uh, because she's uh, she she's in a moment in life when she needs care and there is so much humor this is a movie that when i read it and then when i saw it it reminded me of a movie that i liked a long time ago that i didn't see for a long time but people kept telling me how good it was uh, a great big fat wedding and when you saw it, you realized why people loved it. It showed you who they were in their own family. It reminded you of who you were and who your family members were. And you, uh, and you didn't have to be Greek to identify with that movie. This is a movie like that. It is wonderful, and it is heartlifting, and it is tearful. God, it's a good movie. I have never looked. I've been working 52 years. I have never had as good a job as this. I've never had as good a part as this. Jackie Brown was good for me and Medium Cool and Reflections in a Golden Eye and some of the fun ones like Alligator. And these are movies that I am always proud of. But this one I will be most proud of. And uh, and I can only tell you uh, what they had is one of the great movies in my career. A 50-year Hollywood career, what they had the best. I cannot wait to see it, Robert. I want to ask you about Jackie Brown, which you did cite. I don't know how you did it, but in a cast with such big names like Samuel L. Jackson and Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda and Pam Greer roaring back to prominence, you walked away with the movie. I remember watching it going, man, this guy Robert Forster was the best part of the film. I was so thrilled for you when you got nominated for an Academy Award playing this world-weary bail bondsman who's in love with this woman. Tell me all about that film and uh, how you were able to knock it out of the park. Well, you were proud of me. So were my ex-wives. Um, <laughs> no, this uh, Jackie Brown, like this movie, had great writing. I am the beneficiary of my whole career of great writers. The actor doesn't make it up. Uh, the, the writer gives you something to do and say and presents you on the screen in ways that uh, 
you know, present you wonderfully and heroically and uh, or whatever it is their purpose. But um, uh, Quentin Tarantino is the guy who wrote that and who gave me the part. This part was sought after by every big actor in Hollywood. It was the maybe the best leading, uh, well, it was a supporting man, but it was the best character of that type that year. If Robert Mitchum or uh, Humphrey Bogart were still working, they would have had that role. Uh, but I know that it was, uh, I know that there are other actors who campaigned for it. And uh, Quentin Tarantino, and I know this to be true, said, no, this is Robert Forster's role. I had been out I had had a five-year ascending career and 27 years slipping, sliding, dropping, bounced at the bottom. And when I was very at the bottom, Quentin Tarantino came along in a little coffee shop. I yelled at him. I said, come on over here. And he came over. We we BSed for a while. And, uh, And then I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm adapting an Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch, to a movie. He said, why don't you read it? Uh, about six months later, I walked into my same restaurant where I always had breakfast every morning and he was sitting in my chair. And before I could even get to the chair, he lifted up this script and he handed it to me and he said, read this, see if you like it. So Quentin Tarantino did all the work. I got all the credit. Uh, Elizabeth Chomko for what they had did all the work. I got all the credit. The other actors of course are wonderful and, uh, and they, in them, they have great parts. This is a wonderful movie with characters that you will love and find common with and cry with uh, and laugh with. It's a wonderful movie. I cannot tell you how great I uh, After a 52-year career, I'm in this picture. This is the best of the bunch. I cannot wait to see what they had. One other question about Jackie Brown. How much, uh, I know the character Max Cherry loves the Delphonics, but how much did you like the Delphonics? That's such a great scene in the movie. It's a good motif. These are from my era, from my youth. Uh, You know, these are the kind of things that, uh, when I not my youth youth, my real youth was uh, Boney Maroney and Rockin' Robin and uh, all those uh, novelty songs of that era, of the 50s. But... uh, the Delphonics were uh, were hip and smooth and uh, the kind of thing that Max Cherry only discovered when he knew that Pam Greer uh, liked him. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you can understand that easily. <laughs> Have you ever had a director talk as fast as Tarantino when offering direction on set? Or is he the opposite of what I think? Uh, he is not as uh, frenetic as sometimes you see him on television, but... Uh, he is um, very direct and very clear and simple. His best direction, and I heard him give it more than once to actor, me, and other actors, was just make me believe it. The primary ingredient is that the audience believes the actor. And uh, so uh, all the other things you may have to do in a scene, entrances and exits and moving props around and uh, whatever there else there may be, you got to know what the writer wanted when he created this little fraction of the film that we're shooting right now, and um, and uh, and you got to deliver it uh, uh, as uh, as clearly as you can. He is um, he is a kind of a guy, and once in a while he would hand me a piece of paper that he had just written, stood over there um, with nobody bothering him, and just printed a few words, a couple lines, or a little different to a line. He says, try this the next take. 
and uh, you know you'd read it and absorb it and uh, and um, and try to uh, then deliver it. And uh, bingo, bango, and now we're done. Let's move on to the next shot. That's how movies are shot. You don't shoot a movie; you shoot a series of shots, a finite number of them in a on a on a work day. Uh, 15, 20 shots, 18 shots. And he just, this is something that nobody has ever done. He gave everybody on the crew and cast a shot list, you know, 20 shots. And these are what we're going to try to get today. And with that knowledge, everybody knew how to pull in the same direction. We're going to get these. Everybody is on a team trying to get those shots, preparing for the next shot. Uh, This guy was really, really good. Uh, and uh, and he was uh, he was wonderful to actors. Uh, he made actors uh, uh, confident. He was a great director. Hey, of all the movies, Robert, how about Reflections in a Golden Eye? Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando, and a young Robert Forster. How cool was that? Wow, I was uh, I was not scared somehow. I didn't uh, listen. I figured the only ones who had a right to be scared were the producers or the other actors because they knew what they were doing. I did not. I uh, I showed up there, and I remember being totally naive. I saw in the movie script that the character that I was playing rides naked on a horse. Naked on a horse, I thought to myself. I wonder how they do that. Probably trick photography or something. No. When I got to the set in Italy, there was, we got to the set, and here was a guy sitting on a horse, naked, riding around on this horse. And I said, Holy mackerel, that's supposed to be me. That's some Italian uh, uh, stunt guy or actor. Or, or I said, no, no, no. I went to John Houston. I said, you know, I can do that. He said, can you really, Bobby? I said, sure I can. I said, I can do that. And he said, and the next thing I know, the wardrobe department gave me a little V cut out of a jock strap and some flesh-colored tape for my modesty. I couldn't get it on very well. I got it on. I jumped on the horse. It came off. I threw it in the bushes, and I said, Bob, if you cannot do this, if you are unwilling to give this this moment abandon, you better quit being an actor. That was a moment of truth, and, uh, and uh, you know, you have those kind of moments. If you are afraid to ride this horse naked, uh, <laughs> you better quit. And so uh, that, that was a, uh, a scary moment, but, uh, God, I remember thinking, yeah, trick photography. That's probably how they do it. <laughs> John Houston impression. By the way, you know, I love uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. And some people will say he's doing a John Houston impression. It's your choice. Either you can you can delve into whether or not that's true, or you can just give me more of a John Houston impression, Robert. Your choice. When I met the guy, I, I don't know whether he was doing a John, John Houston impression, but I have done a, a few words in the Houston. When I first met him, I waited in a lobby. There were all kinds of guys. They all looked like me. And I said, God, this is a uh, this is a, a cattle call. I knew what the word was. I'd just never been in one. But I saw all these guys in the hotel lobby. Finally, when they called my name, I was escorted up the elevator. We wait outside of a door. Somebody leaves. I'm escorted in. I'm introduced to this tall, old guy. What have you done? What have you done? I said, look, I haven't done much. I did one Broadway play. I wasn't bad. I don't make myself an actor. I never did a movie. I don't know what the tricks are. But if you hire me, I'll give you your money's worth. He says, Ray, Ray Stark, a big producer. Ray, come in here, Ray. I'd like you to meet an actor. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I told him I only did it once. I didn't want to oversell myself. 
I shake hands with the with the uh, with the producer. I turn back to John Houston. John Houston says, "You'll be hearing from us." <laughs> I figure that's the kiss off when uh, when you hear you will be hearing from you'll be hearing from us. You never hear from anybody. Yeah. In any event, this guy gave me one of my great lessons in movie making. Um, uh, two days later, I was on the phone with him. The agents arranged a telephone call. Uh, I say, um, now look, I uh, I thank you very much for uh, hiring me, and I appreciate it. I said, but do you remember I told you I never did a movie? He (laughs) says, I remember. And I said, well, well, and he says, reading my mind, he says, I'll give you some instruction. Uh, I meet him again uh, about a month later here in Los Angeles at uh, Western Costume. We're doing the costuming, and I go straight to him. I say, look, they... They, uh, they, they sent me the script, and I read the script, and, and the, you said you had some instructions for me. What are they? And he says, but not yet, Bobby. Well, until the morning we start shooting, I asked him, what are these instructions? Finally, on the morning we start shooting, he says, uh, and we, I drive me to the car, I drive me to the set, I get out of the one foot out the back door when from behind I hear Houston say, now's the time, Bobby. I say, shoot, I'm all ears. He says, go take a look through the lens. And I walk to the lens and I look through and I turn to him and he's got his fingers in that way. Directors show you what the frame line is. And he says, those are the frame lines. I said, yeah, you mean that line that shows the cameraman what the audience sees? He says, those are the frame lines. Now, ask yourself this. What needs to be there? In one Zen remark, this guy gives me the responsibility and the authority to put inside that frame what needs to go in there. He didn't tell me all the other things, and I won't make it long, but he didn't tell me what the, that the writer uh, uh, needs something there, and I didn't, uh, he didn't tell me I was going to have to do the detective work. He didn't tell me... Uh, what the that the light guy wants me to be in him, or that the one behind the lens has got to be, um, I've got to be inside of his frame. Or if I do something wrong for sound, they call and they say no good for sound. Start again. The actor has got to create a stroke which advantages everybody's needs at once. Everybody is your boss, and uh, look, uh, you you owe something to the other actor. You owe something to the guy who's cutting this picture and editing this picture. And if you're going around the curves of this of this roller coaster car that we've trying to get our audience in and give them a ride. And if you're not believable, they won't be there at the end of the ride. You owe something to everybody, including the guy who hired you. You got to be ready so that you can help them make their schedule. Every single day is a war day. You got to get all those shots. And um, John Houston gave me my best single piece of advice ever. Those are the frame lines. Now ask yourself this, what needs to be there? That's fabulous. Great storytelling from Robert Forster. What they had is this new movie. A couple more for you that I promise we'll let you get rolling. Tell me about Sheriff Truman in Twin Peaks. What was your favorite part of that character? He was a straight shooter. Uh, You know, I've been hired to play straight shooters, good guys. Uh, And and I think that that may be uh, what my uh, the end of my career is is going to be like. I played good guys for 13 years and then I played a bad guy in uh, Delta Force, and then I could not get out of bad guys for 13 years. Every job I had was a bad guy. 
And Jackie Brown gave me the, the, the good guy that started out the last 20 years. This has been 20 years since Jackie Brown. And I've had 20 years of good guys and 20 years of playing uh, straight shooters and honest men and, uh, and uh, good fathers and uh, all the kind of things that I always thought I would like to be playing as an actor. You don't know until you start do you, what you're going to do. You would just have some vague notion when you started. Uh, I thought, God, I don't want to be a lawyer. I, I think I'd rather be an actor. Uh, I wonder how you do it. I did a play by accident at the University of Rochester. I followed a girl into a into a, the um, the auditorium. I said I was struck by lightning. I saw her and I walked and I she walked into the auditorium. I followed her into the auditorium. I uh, met the girl. I, uh, I they didn't give me the part that I thought I wanted. The part of the uh, the part of the guy with the gold suit in, uh, in uh, what was the name of that musical? Um, mu- no, not the Music Man. Something else. Um, Meet me in St. Louis. No, it was a fun musical. And uh, anyway, Oklahoma. I said, "Stay, stick, stick, Bob. You'll meet the girl." I did meet the girl. I married the girl. We had three daughters, and uh, and that was the genesis of my wanting to be an actor. I thought I don't want to be a lawyer. I'd rather be an actor. I wonder how you do it. And you don't know what's going to happen to you. But over the last 20 years, Quentin Tarantino put me back into good guys. And for the last 20, I've been playing, uh, for the most part, um, good straight shooters. And, uh, and, uh, and Truman, uh, Sheriff Truman, David Lynch, gave me that kind of part to play. Um, it wasn't uh, strange. It was uh, a, a grounded good guy. And I have enjoyed playing those kind of characters. The kind of character I play in, in, uh, in what they had, uh, a a father who is fighting for his, his uh, his wife, who wants to uh, love and protect her, and is at odds with the children who do not want it to be the way I want it to be. It's a uh, it's a family fight, um, of a serious movie with an awful lot of humor, tears and laughter. Last one for you, Robert. We're obsessed with Michael Shannon, who is a co-star in What They Had, this film that you're talking about. He's so great because he's so good at playing these villains. I just love uh, how sadistic he can be in film. But I imagine in life, he is nothing like that. Tell me all about Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon is nothing like that in life. He is the guy when we do the Q&As. You know, we're plugging this picture. And when we do a screening and uh, there several of us are uh, sitting in chairs, he is always the guy that gets laughs. He is always the guy that is understated. He is one of the really good guys uh, that I've ever met. And I've done, I did another picture with him. We did a, a Grand Theft Parsons about ooh, 15 or 17 years ago. Uh, and uh, so this is the second time we've worked together. And he claims that if I, uh, if I last long enough, we will do another one. I love it. What they had, it's a new film. Robert Forster, these stories were phenomenal. Uh, Naked Guy on a Horse, John Houston, Tarantino, I loved it. Thank you so much. You are such a gent, and I appreciate it. Mount Rushmore. 
All right, once again, Robert Forrester, what a great guy, Joe. How about that story you told about John Houston? You know, naked guy on a horse? That's what Hollywood movie acting is all about, right? So, so funny. And a real testament. He said, if, if I can't ride naked on a horse, then I shouldn't be an actor. <laughs> such a good line. Uh, <laughs> he's just such a funny guy, yeah. man. Robert Forrester. All right, now time for the Mount Rushmore movies based on TV shows. This is in honor of El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie, so some good options here. Joe did include SNL movies here for me, but he and I both agree it's a bit of a stretch, although if you want to include Wayne's World or Blues Brothers, that's fine. But this is movies based on TV shows. That's going to be our categories here. How about this one out of the gate? Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. I've only seen it once, but I'd like to watch it again. I don't think even I appreciate now how funny Borat was. At the time, I mean, that was one of those comedic phenomenons. Everyone's going to see it. Everyone's talking about it. Just like there's something about Mary... You know, outrageous humor. At that time, it was kind of, you know, marking the arrival of the Farrelly brothers. And um, I think in the case of this one, you go, all right, Sasha Baron Cohen, I was not an Ali G watcher. But once I saw this, I said, obviously, this guy's really funny and doing something that nobody else is doing. And maybe Bruno didn't hit the mark as many others, but Borat certainly is very funny and just an indelible character. And that's nice. And everybody was doing impressions all over the place. Borat definitely is a hysterical movie. Although that naked wrestling scene will haunt me forever. I'm also going to include The Untouchables. Of course, that's based on the TV show, Robert Stack. The great David Mamet wrote the script. Brian De Palma directed it. Powerhouse cast. You got Kevin Costner, Andy Garcia, Robert De Niro, and an Academy Award-winning performance, Sean Connery as Malone. Untouchables has got so many memorable one-liners and so many incredible scenes. I mean, the, the homage to the Odessa step sequence, the courtroom trial, just De Niro bashing a guy with a bat, talking about team. Untouchables is a no-brainer. I'm also going to include Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. Might be my favorite comedy of all time. Just hysterically funny. Just one line after one line. Sight gags, double entendres, play on words. I'm now old enough to get all the sexual jokes. Naked Gun is phenomenal. And one more here. Movie based on a TV show on my Mount Rushmore. I fart in your general direction. That's right. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Just the fact they've got a guy with coconuts as he's riding a horse. Bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. Go ahead. Give me your favorite line. A lot of comedies here I focused on for my Mount Rushmore. Three of the four, as a matter of fact. Borat, Untouchables, Naked Gun, and Monty Python, and the Holy Grail. Joe, how about you? I have The Fugitive, Harrison Ford. Uh, I didn't kill my wife. I didn't I kill my care. wife. <laughs> uh, I also have, I figure... I might as well throw in one Mission Impossible movie. I have my issues with Tom Cruise, but Mission Impossible Fallout was such a fun movie to watch last summer. So I'm going to throw that in there. And then Naked Gun, Leslie Nielsen, probably the best slapstick comedian of his era and generation. And then I have to agree with you, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So many one-liners. The, I didn't, as a child watching it for the first time, I didn't understand the ending of it how they could just end a movie like that. And it wasn't until years later I was like, this is genius. Just to have this person arrested is so funny. <laughs> so I got to go with Monty Python. Yeah, if you've never seen it before, uh, check out Monty Python, The Holy Grail. You're right. It's an absolute brilliant movie. Uh, if you appreciate British humor, you'll appreciate just how funny that show was and, in fact, how great that movie adaptation was. The Bada Binge. All right, now it's time for the Bada Binge. We're season six, part one, rolling along here. Episodes seven, eight, and nine, looking at Luxury Lounge, Johnny Cakes, 
and the ride. First off, let's talk about Luxury Lounge. And of course, I'm using as a resource The Soprano Sessions by Matt Zoller Seitz and Alan Seppenwald. Check out the book from these guys. Luxury Round Lounge. This one's kind of one of those episodes where they're not focusing on the A plot, but a couple of B plots, which are still very entertaining. You got the story of Artie running afoul of Benny Fazio in New Jersey and Christopher and little Carmine failing to impress Ben Kingsley in Beverly Hills. This was one of those Sopranos episodes in which they had fun with uh, being satiric and sending up the whole movie and TV industry. In fact, you got Christopher telling Lauren Bacall, you were great in the haves and have-nots. Of course, it's to have and have-not, but the fact that you even have Lauren Bacall in the show is amazing. Uh, you got violence happening miles away as Christopher and little Carmine are trying to get Ben Kingsley to play the mob boss in Cleaver, which is, of course, Christopher's B movie. By the way, according to The Sopranos casting associate, Meredith Tucker, other people uh, who were thought of for this role, Michael Douglas... Christopher Walken, Alec Baldwin, and Michael Gambal. Uh, all those guys would have been tremendous, but Kingsley is fantastic. The fact he's an Oscar-winning actor who's not impressed at all by this pitch from Christopher is very funny. Uh, later on, the guys are really excited about the fact that Kingsley and everybody in Hollywood gets all these gift bags, and they mug Lauren Bacall, and they abscond with her $30,000 Show West gift basket. The fact that it's Lauren Bacall is just perfect because, you know, she's one of these old-school actresses who was in a lot of those kind of, you know, tough, gritty shows and uh, movies. And, of course, is married to Humphrey Bogart, who was so iconic in film noir. So I think she really kind of fits Hollywood glamour and toughness and definitely a movie that Tony would watch. He probably loves Lauren Bacall movies. I don't know if Christopher would watch as many, but it would definitely be appealing to Christopher that she's of that era and a great sport. The fact that she's in her 80s and just gets mugged and was willing to do it is impressive that they were able to convince her. Um, also, just the, the character of Artie, you know, John Ventimiglia is such a good actor. And as the guys write, he's exquisitely desperate throughout the hour. Willie Loman via Big Night, a film reference in the Back to Square One cooking montage scored naturally to music that would sound at home in the old country. Big Night, one of my favorite movies, one of the best movies ever about cooking and food and brothers and sibling rivalries and all the rest of it. A really good episode, Luxury Lounge. They're entertaining, and I didn't think it wasn't necessarily furthering the plot of The Sopranos, but still really well done. Then we get to Johnny Cakes, biggest departure of season six and possibly the series. This one, they're really focusing on their relationship here with Vito and falling in love with Jim, played by John Castello, who is the short order cook. Breakfast specialty gives the episode title Johnny Cakes. This was one here for the, the crowd that said, hey, less yak and more whack. And they're like, hang on a second. I, I'm not sure about this. All of a sudden, we got gay storylines here taking center stage on The Sopranos. But I thought that <clears throat> it was definitely a daring episode. And even though at times the performances aren't 100%, you still got that John Wayne quality brawl outside the bar. The fact that Vito is so self-loathing, you know, the fact he, even when he says, you know, I've been trying to live a lie for so long, I don't know when I can actually show myself. You know, that's a really good line, but a fact, a guy who's in self-denial, the fact that he, when he actually returns Joe's kiss, you know, for him, that's probably, you know, the biggest thing he's ever had to do in his life. Uh, the guys also write the fact that the reality of the show first very dreamlike. It kind of feels like, the way Todd Haynes is 2002, Far From Heaven, a Douglas Sirk pastiche that imagined what one of the master's films would look like at 1950s Hollywood allowed sexually frank dramas with interracial romance and gay themes. Sirk's 1959 classic imitation of life about an aspiring white actress who befriends an African-American widow whose daughter tries to pass for white as a teenager plays in the Spadafore's TV after the ceremony wedding. So there's the guys kind of tipping their hand a little bit. Later on, though, you've got the story involving Tony and another spitfire. That's right, Juliana Skiff, played by Juliana Margulies from ER. She checks all the boxes for Tony, although she is Jewish, not Italian. But she's beautiful, intelligent, professional, brunette, damaged, in recovery. 
As he says at one point, I got a baguette in my pants now 24-7. But this is actually one of my favorite moments in The Sopranos in terms of subtlety and the way it shows how Tony realizes he has a conscience, which is so incredibly rare for him. Tony's emotional calculus is conveyed non-verbally here through earlier shots of Tony fixating on Carmela's hands, buttoning his dress shirt over the scarred belly, whose innards she bravely stared into, and of her eyes gazing up at him adoringly and rhyming images of Juliana trying to unbutton that same shirt later, a gesture that triggers guilty recoil in Tony. It's the first sign of genuine emotional change for him post-shooting, and one he's not particularly happy about, as evidenced by the closing scene where he yells at Carmela for failing to stock the fridge with smoked turkey perhaps an attempt to retroactively give himself some justification, however absurd for having almost stepped out on her. It's a really funny scene, the fact that, you know, he's all pent-up sexual frustration. That's why he ends up yelling at her about smoked turkey. <laughs> it's just so funny, but so ridiculous. But again, it really shows the fact that Tony has got a conscience when he tells Juliana Margulies to stop. There's also some uh, feelings of inadequacy. Later on, he's, you know, he's watching The Godfather with his dad. That would be AJ. And that inspires him to seek revenge on Uncle Junior, but it's bungled before he can even begin. And later on, when Tony bails out AJ, you know, he tenderly tells AJ, it's not your nature. And when a defined AJ father tells me he doesn't know him, Tony says, you're a nice guy. That's a good thing, for Christ's sake. You're not going to be part of the family business like me. You're different. Like Fredo in the first two Godfather films, a man whom others see as worthless except for his connections to power, that's the way the other guys are treating AJ now that he's a teenager. One more episode to focus on here, season six, episode nine, written by Terrence Winter, directed by Alan Taylor. That would be called The Ride. Polly Walnut's a guy to be admired, you think, but not in this episode. This time he's so cheap with a raging sense of entitlement, the fact that he runs these festival rides that honestly endangers kids, he couldn't even care less about him. And so at this point, he finally is an outcast. The guys realize he's a total jerk, he's totally cheap, he was putting kids in welfare, and now he's got a prostate cancer scare. The only person he can turn to is the Lawrence Welk-loving adoptive mother whom he has cursed out and abandoned. A rare sign of tenderness here from Polly as he goes back to his ma. Later on, you got Christopher as well, just fighting off all the demons. You see one of the more powerful scenes here of this entire episode when he ratted out Adriana. We finally see that in flashback via a deleted scene from season five's long-term parking. Not only murdered the woman of his dreams, but became so obsessed with her that the memory of her life and death seems destined to destroy him, whether through his own self-sabotage or Carmela's growing suspicions over AIDS' fate. Because now you see Christopher's moved on. He's got a girl named Kelly, and uh, now they're going to get married. You kind of meet her. And honestly, you don't need to know much about Kelly except the fact she's a replacement Adriana. As the guys write, less tacky with the makeup and nails, but seemingly more pliant, more submissive to her man and his moods. She's Adriana with most of her decency, but without the fire that made Adriana so special and uniquely lovable. The Adriana Chris didn't know that he didn't really want. A sad episode here as Christopher realizes what he has lost down the past and what he's now trying to make do with Kelly. Three more episodes to discuss in Season 6, Part 1. We'll do that next time here on Cinephile, and then we'll be diving into Season 6, Part 2, or Season 7, depending on how you look at it. But bottom line is this. We appreciate you always listening to Cinephile, and rest in peace to Robert Forster, a wonderful character actor. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. Rest in peace to Robert Forster, and until then, we'll see you at the movies. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.